Technology is great when it works. Now it's working. Okay. A little confused there. I always have a backup in my Bible just in case. The old standby paper notes. Okay. It's good to see you this morning. Um, we've been in the book of Acts now for, oh, I don't know how long, a long time. We're in chapter 21 today. So if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 21 of Acts. And we're going to be examining that. Today actually is kind of a two-part sermon. This week's the first part. Next week's the second part. It kind of goes together. As I was examining the scripture back a, a while back, I realized that really kind of fits together. Um, and together, and so it's actually three, three points. So this week's two points. Next week's one point. But don't think next week's going to be shorter because the one point next week actually covers two chapters of scripture. So uh, we're just going to look at that uh, next week uh, for time's sake. Um, remember when we began Acts, we started it and said that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the key verse in all of Acts uh, that really gives the outline and the purpose of the church and really it's what Acts is all about as Luke was writing about the early church. And it said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The interesting word there is the word power. It says you will receive power. Power to do what? Well, we discovered over the last several weeks and months of looking at the book of Acts that uh, the power is to be the witness for God, to live God's purposes in our life. And um, today, uh, as we look at Acts chapter 21, I shared with you last week that actually, actually Acts chapter 20, verse 28, if you put it together, is kind of a part of Acts that really talks about the power of total surrender, the power of total surrender uh, in our lives. Luke, as he wrote Acts, uh, gives us a picture of what a totally sold-out follower of Christ looks like. And in the last few chapters, that person here is, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, and, and the thing we're going to look at is the power that comes in our life when you give everything to God, when you focus your attention, everything to God. Uh, last week we looked at, as we began this section in a sense, we talked about the power in a sense that, that Paul had to be a witness, a positive witness to everyone. And the question we had last week was, what does your life say? If people look at your life, what would your life say? Paul shared that as he shared with the Ephesian church, uh, the power to be a positive example to others. Now today, as we look at Acts chapter 21, I just want to share with you two things today that, that comes in our life when we totally surrender our life to God. Number one is this. It's the power of one purpose. It gives us the power of having a single purpose in your life. Would you say that your life is, could, would be better if you had less things to do? How many would say that? You had less things to do. If you could narrow the thing down and be able to take your list and go like, I can only do, and what if it was just one thing? Would that be good? Think you could do one thing? Just one thing. The thing is, is we have so many things to do in our culture today that we have this whole you know, laundry list of things to do, and so often we don't do everything, anything very well. Uh, in James chapter 1, verse 8, this is what James says. It says, a double-minded man is unstable in all he does. It means if you have two thoughts and you're, you're trying to do two things at the same time. So the whole idea of, 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 uh, uh, of trying to do too many things at one time does not work. So as we come to chapter 21 today, what we'll see is an example of a person who had a single focus in his life and the power that that single focus brought to his life, the power of one purpose. Acts 21, verses 1 through 4. Now, I'm not going to read, or on the screen will not be all the verses that I read today. So if you have a Bible, you need to open it up. If you don't, we do have extra copies of Bibles back in the back. I would encourage you to always bring Scripture with you, because I can only put, especially when we're going through these long passages, only the key verses up on the screen. But I will read some of the verses. Acts chapter 21. What do we see here in Acts chapter 21 as it starts? It says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, talking about 
the Ephesian elders we talked about last week and had this conversation with them. It says, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera, and we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, and we landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. And finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. And then this is an interesting thing at the end of this fourth verse in Acts chapter 20, when it says, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, when I read that, I'm a little confused because I look, I remember what Paul just said back in Acts chapter 20. Because in Acts chapter 20, this is what he said in verse 22. Okay, the believers say, as they meet with him, these are followers of Christ. They says, through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says this. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And then verse 23 and 24, he says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Does there seem to be a conflict there? The believers say, hey, through the Spirit, this is not just some idea we came up with, but through the Spirit and our, and our connection with the Spirit, the Spirit has said to us that you shouldn't go there. Warning, something is going to happen in Jerusalem. But Paul says, through the Spirit, same Spirit, and the Bible says the Spirit is not a spirit of confusion. It says, I'm compelled, Paul says, by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. See, they heard the same message, but they interpreted it differently. The believers say there's this warning from the Spirit. So their first thing is for Paul's safety. They say, Paul, we love you. Don't go there. But Paul hears the same warning, but he interprets it differently. He says the believers, see, the believers think there is a problem, so the thing to do is to avoid the problem. They believe the goal is to avoid hardship. But Paul hears the warning and understands it simply means this. I better be ready. And the reason Paul interpreted it that way is because he had a single purpose in his life that he lived by. And he, we talked about this last week in verse 24 of chapter 20. This is his purpose. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So out of that verse, what was Paul's purpose? Was it avoiding hardship? No. His purpose was very clearly that I must stay on course in testifying to the, to the, to the gospel of God's grace. I must do what Acts 1.8 says. I must allow the Holy Spirit to live in my life and so that I can be a witness wherever I go. See, that's Paul's goal. And so they see it in different ways. It's not a different message. They just interpret the message differently between the, the friends, the believers, and also Paul. Then later on in verse 21, we see this, uh, chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way, and all the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. This is a very touching scene here where Paul and all these close believers, these the Ephesian elders and, and people there, had stayed with him. They were knowing he was going to go on to, to Jerusalem, but they knelt there to pray with him. Verse 6, after saying goodbye to each other, we went on board, went aboard the ship, and they returned home. And so Paul continues, it says, on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. 
And leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea. Now, sometimes in Scripture, I ask myself, why do they give the names of all these places? I mean, do you guys know where these places are? But if you look on a map and you understand the thing, where was Paul's purpose? He was going back to Jerusalem. He said, God has called me to go to Jerusalem. And if you look on a map, you'll see this is the most direct route to Jerusalem possible. Matter of fact, Caesarea is, is the closest place as he landed there, and that's the closest place to go on a road that leads to uh, Jerusalem. It's only 64 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So he's on his direct route. He's not meandering around. He knows the Spirit has told him there's going to be difficulties and trials and th- some things that go on there. And so you need to be ready. But he doesn't, doesn't waver. He stays on, t- on task. And it says, Then he stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. See, Paul is taking this most direct route because he knows this is his purpose. He doesn't want to waver. He stays on task in what he's doing. And by the way, this uh, Philip, who is Philip here? Philip, it says here, Philip the Evangelist. It's the same Philip who, if you remember back in Acts chapter 8, which was a, a good while back we studied, this is the Philip who uh, led the Ethiopian eunuch to, uh, to Christ. Uh, and in, apparently at this point in his life, uh, he had settled down, he'd gotten married, and it says he had four daughters who prophesied. Now, just a word of teaching here. The word prophecy here means literally, in the Greek, it means this, to speak a biblical word with power and precision. To speak a biblical word with power and precision. These four uh, daughters, these four daughters of, of unmarried daughters of, uh, of Philip the Evangelist, obviously had learned God's word, passed down from their father through all these time. And here they were, they were considered, they were prophesying, they were speaking God's word with, um, with precision and with power. Now, when I read this, it reminded me of something, that one thing sometimes in our church, this is something that constantly we have a battle with. This is an aside from the main sermon, but this is something I want to stop for just a second and talk about, is sometimes some people minimize the role of women in leadership in the church. But here we see some ladies, some young ladies, who had, were speaking God's word with power and precision in their lives. Scripture does talk about roles and order in the church, but at the same time it never devalues the, the value of women in the church, and in their role of leadership. And so we need to value and hold that in high value as well because of the contribution that women and men make in the life of the church. Now, that was five cents extra just as we stop along the way, but I thought it was important to point that out here in Scripture once again as we come through Scripture. Then in verse 10, he continues along the journey toward Jerusalem, and it says, as he was there in Caesarea, it says, verse 10, after he had been there, this is going to be on the screen, after he had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus was somebody we discovered back in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. And it was just mentioned there. He was a person who had pronounced a plague. He was a known entity. This wasn't a new guy that shows up out of the blue they never encountered before. Somebody they knew. This Agabus, who was a friend of the church, obviously, another believer. It says, this Agabus came down from Judea. And it says in verse 11, he came over to us and he took Paul's belt. Basically, now, this is not like a belt like this. It was probably more of a sash, okay? And so he comes over to Paul. Literally what he does is he takes, I don't know if he unties it, I don't know how it's going on, but he takes his belt off. And he uses it for an illustration. And it says this Agabus, what he does, it says he tied his own hands and his feet with it, and he says this. The Holy Spirit says, in this way, in this way, tied together, 
The Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt. Who was the owner of the belt? Paul. He's taking it right off of Paul. He will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, did that stop Paul? Did he turn around and go home? No. Because we're reading the very next verse, verse 12, it says this. When we heard this, this is Luke talking. When we heard this and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem once again. Once again, the believers said, I hope we've already prayed and in the spirit we heard, you know, heard the spirit say that there's going to be some problems in, in Jerusalem. So don't go. And they hear, and they hear this, this prophecy that's kind of like, you know, an affirmation that this is going to happen. And then what happens is uh, they plead with him. But then Paul answers them in verse 13. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not ready. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now I want to stop here a second and talk about what it says here, how important this is in regards to what we learn about the, what a person looks like who is totally committed to Christ, as Paul is. There's three things that I found in this, this, these last few verses here, verses 10 through 15, that. Uh, that really stand out to me. Number one, Paul was not dissuaded by the opinions of others. He didn't let the opinions of others, even though they were believers, dissuade him from the task that God had given him clearly. Now, in Scripture, in coming to a decision about God's will, Scripture does say that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors, right? Yeah, it says that we're to turn to other believers, and one of the ways we can discern God's will is through a multitude of counselors, others who who are godly people. We need to listen to godly people. But once the decision has been made clear that this is God's will, then we're to go on the path and not let people dissuade us here and there. Because the problem is sometimes we can do that. And I found this to be true. As hard as it is to accept sometimes God's will for our life, it is sometimes even harder for those who love us to accept God's will for our life. See, sometimes we hinder God's will in, in the lives of others we love because we don't want to be separated from them. Parents, we can be guilty of this. You know, how many of you will say, yeah, I'd love my child to go to the other side of the world? Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, I mean, you guys, are, you got a child in Honduras right now. Okay. You don't count. Uh, <laughs> but so often we say to people, I was thinking a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago when we had the couple, and it's true. You know, I don't know how you felt when, uh, when your daughter left and took off for Honduras for six months, but right now it's only six months. But wonder if God opens the door for a longer term or something. You know, you don't know. You don't know. But the issue is, is you know, uh, sometimes we can do that. We can sometimes say, I don't want to be separated from my child because, you know, I just, I just want this. I want to be close. And so we don't look at whose child are they first and foremost. Yours or God's? God's. I was thinking weeks ago when we had the, the masters, Troy and Jerry Masters here. And they're leaving to go to Africa with their two youngest da- daughters. And their oldest daughter, who's graduating from high school, is going to be back here in the States. They will, she might be lucky to see them once or t- once a year. For the next several years. And I'm sure she had family that was going like, man, why are you doing that? Africa? Of all places. Honduras? Of all, you know, sometimes we can have this 
I'm not calling it separation anxiety. I'm calling it separation fear. That we need to let people, you know, if, if, they're really, if we really want God's will for our kids and for others, we need to be open to where God's leading them. Sometimes we hinder God's will for the lives of others because we don't want them to suffer. We know that it's going to be hard, maybe hardships and things that will be difficult. Just stay here and be, be comfortable. See, Paul is a person who, who's first and foremost understood God's purpose for his life, and he was totally surrendered to that. And because of that, he was not dissuaded by the opinion of others. Secondly, he placed no limits on following Christ. He didn't place limits on following Christ. See what it says? It says, I am ready not only to be bound, not only what Agabus said is going to happen, I'm going to be bound. It says, but I'm also ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There is a critical moment in our life as believers when we come to the place where we have to say to God, God, I'm willing to do and follow you wherever you want me to go. I'm totally surrendered. That came from me. And it, it's not sometimes all at one time. Sometimes it's a progressive thing. And I shared, I've shared part of this story before, but many, many years ago, it's probably 12, 13, about 13 years ago, I'd come to a point in my ministry in my life and, and where I was in Virginia, and as I was there, I was saying, God, where do you want me to go next? And Vicky and I began to pray and pray and pray and say, God, we'll go anywhere you want us to go as long as it's south. We did. You know, warm, where it's warm. Well, I don't like the cold, and my wife likes the cold less. Okay. But let me tell you, it wasn't until a place when I got, I had to be broken to this, first of all. I had, and nothing seemed to be happening there. I mean, no doors were opening, nothing was opening there. And it came to the place, finally I was at a conference at Flamingo Road Church. And I can remember the moment in Florida, of all places, at a conference. And they, they sang this song, the first song at a conference. I had taken two or three people from my church. And they didn't know the struggle that was going on in me personally. And they sang this song, and the song was, I'll never be the same again. It was a Hillsong song. And they changed, tweaked the words a little bit, and those words just struck me so much. And, and, you know, at that place, I'm going, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Even Germantown Hills. I didn't even know Germantown Hills existed back then. But truly, it was a breakthrough. That's when God began to open doors. I wish I'd have done it ten years before that. That's the only regret I have. See, we've got to, we can't, a person who's totally sold out, sold out to God, they, they're willing to place no limits on following Christ. And finally, a person who's sold out to God, he lived, they live for one purpose. That is what, it was easy to filter things in Paul's life. He says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For what? For the name, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that mean he, you know, when he heard the name J-E-S-U-S, that that's, you know, that's what, no, he's talking about the reputation of Jesus. The reputation of Jesus. I'm willing to do whatever for the reputation. Paul knew that he was an ambassador for Christ and that people would be forming assessments about who Jesus is because, as they watched him. And in Scripture, we constantly see the name of Christ brought up, people healed in the name, in the name of Jesus. They cast out de- demons in the name of Jesus. They, threat, they even threaten people not to speak the name of Jesus. It was all about the name. And there's this battle in our lives about, you know, the reputation of Christ. And we have to ask ourselves, no matter what people say or do, how high will I hold up the name of Christ in my life? 
And Paul was one who cared nothing about anything other than the reputation of Jesus Christ. That was his focus. That was everything about what he did. And then in verses 14 and 15, it says, okay, and when he could not, would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Sometimes it takes that. And it takes our focus for us to, to bring people along with us to where it needs to be going, where God is taking us. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to see the value and singleness of purpose. It applies in all areas of life when you might say, you know, I have no doubt that there is power in one purpose. If you just do one thing, you could do it a lot better than doing a bunch of things, right? If I put all my eggs in one basket, only Jesus is my only agenda, every ability, every talent, every resource for him. No question that there is power in that singleness of purpose, right? But, there's always a but. But you'll say, Pastor, you know, practically I live in the real world. I really do. And there are real battles and real issues. How does this power work there? This power power that we live when we have totally surrendered to God. How does it work in our life as far as helping me day to day to live life? Well, the next part of Acts that we're going to talk about today is the second thing that I see that happens when we have a total focus upon God. It's that. It's the power to endure false accusations. The power to endure false accusations. You know, if everything is going fine in our life, we're fine usually. We're good. We're nice. Everything's good. But when people attack you or me or say false things about us, there's all of a sudden this ugliness that comes out of us. Is that true? No, it's just me. I'm sorry. It's nobody else here deals with it that way. I mean, when somebody says something false about you, the first response is, oh, bless them. Right? No. That's not the way we are, generally. It's interesting here, after Paul... Paul decides to go to Jerusalem following God's will. He's doing what God has told him to do. And we've learned all the things about Paul already, about how he careful he was and how he spoke to people. He spoke the truth and he did it in love and he, and he followed people. But then in verse 17, chapter 21, they finally arrive in Jerusalem. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. That sounds good, right? So far, so good. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. James is the half-brother of Jesus here. He seems to be the primary leader of the Jerusalem church at this point. And then in verse 19, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. All the stuff we've already read about. And then in verse 20, when they heard this, these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. But then we come to verse 21. They have been informed, I don't know how, these zealous Jews who have believers, thousands of Jews who have believed, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. Had Paul actually said that, those words? No. He wasn't going around. He was very careful to understand the cultural traditions of the Jews. And he went around and he, he, he talked to them and he said, this is the thing you have to believe. But he didn't talk against those things that, that they were accusing him of. 
He, this was a false accusation. Then in verse 22, what shall we do then, says uh, Paul and his followers? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Now, the vow that they're talking about here is called a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow was simply, if you want to know more about, look over in Numbers chapter 6 in the Old Testament. And the Nazarite vow was a symbolism, was, a, was an act for 30 days that people did to symbolize their total commitment to God. It was, a, it was kind of a, a consecration of, of focusing their attention upon God. And it was actually three people in Scripture that we know of, at least, that, that lived their, pretty much most of their life under a Nazarite vow. Remember who those were? Two Old Testament guys, one New Testament? Samson, that's one. Got number one. Number two, Samuel. Number three. John, man, you know, you, were you in the first service? No, you just know, good. You know, the smart people always sit up front. <laughs> so, thank you. Uh, man, no, nobody last service. Everybody was, I was kind of pulling it out on last service. Nobody seemed to get that. Thank you. But anyway, these three, but most people, when they took a Nazarite vow, it was just for 30 days. It was just a 30-day vow. But it was a very uh, important thing. It was part of their, of their Jewish tradition to do that. So it says, what we need to do, there are four men who are taking this vow. He says, they say to Paul, take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. You're going like, what has that got to do with anything? Well, at the end of the Nazarite vow to show that it had been completed, you shaved your head. So ladies, you have a little bit more to deal with than the guys do. You know, like me, it wouldn't be a big deal. But, you know, so they shaved their heads. That was the end of the vow. But uh, so that was what they were doing. And it says then this in the next verse, then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. They were saying, do this symbolic thing to show your commitment to God and also to the law so that they will not be, think that you're offensive. Now, once again, let's go back. Were the things they said about the people were saying about Paul true? No. It was a false accusation. Did Paul have to do any of the things they were asking him to do to be, to be right? No. He didn't have to do any of those things. Couldn't he have just said, you know, all this stuff you're saying about me, it's not true. I never did it. I did the opposite, in fact. You know, I went out of my way to show respect for the law. He could have said that. Furthermore, he could have said, why should I pay for somebody else's vow that I don't even know? And that's the way so often that we, when we're falsely accused or attacked, that's how we respond. We respond in, I think, at least three ways uh, when we're falsely accused. One, we deny it. We say, I didn't do that. Number two, we demand, take that back. You have no right to say that about me. And then we get in their face. Or three, we strike back. Well, what about you? And we just try to turn it around on them, right? Isn't that a normal way when people attack us, that in our natural inclination to do that? But as you look at Paul in Scripture here, Paul being totally surrendered to Jesus Christ, he has no thought of his own reputation. His own, he doesn't have any ego, uh, no pride in the matter. So they, so they asked Paul to go and do these things. Why? For the reputation of Christ, for the name of Christ, so people will know that you aren't this person. And what does he do? He does them. He does them because it was not about him. 
And then in verse 25, I don't know exactly why. Sometimes I ask myself why that was written here. But they remind once again of what they had said earlier in Acts 15 when they had the Jerusalem council. They said, as for Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and for sexual immorality. It's basically a review of Acts 15, the letter to the Gentile Christians. And it's basically when they ask Gentiles to leave paganism. It's not enough to follow Christ, but leave behind uh, the things that you've been there. It's kind of like in Africa when, when I was over there recently. The thing about it there was that it's not only about getting people to follow Christ, but you have to also explain to them you can't hold on to your other beliefs, your animistic beliefs and, and, your, and, your, and the things about uh, the Muslim beliefs. You have to push those aside and no longer follow those because they would very readily over there, we found out, what they'll do is they'll add on to these other beliefs, Christianity. And that's what Paul is saying here, and that's what the, the, I mean, the council said there, is we need to leave these things behind because as I thought about them, they're really pagan beliefs. All these things are. Then in verse 26, the next day, Paul does it. He takes the men and he purified himself along with them. Then what does he do then? He goes to the temple to give notice of the date when the day of purification would end. And the offering would be made for each one of them. That was part of this process, this Jewish law, to do this. Paul did it. He just did it. He just followed along. See, sometimes when you do the hard thing, what do you expect when you do it? Paul did the right thing. He was a hard thing. He, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He did nothing wrong, but he did anything, something else. What do you usually expect when you do the right thing? For God to bless you, right? For people to respond in the right way, Right? I'll never forget, I'll never forget, about 12 years ago, two years before I came here, there was this guy that came to my former church. He'd, not, he'd been there for, he'd been there years before, but then he came back to the church and he showed up. And as soon as he showed up, he started causing all kinds of problems. He started going around talking to people behind people's backs and he was telling all kinds of things I found out about me. And he raised up a whole bunch of people and, he, and, and it was really ugly and I knew that every one of the things he was saying was not true. And so I, instead of just getting mad, I said, what I need to do is gather these people together that he, has, that he has talked to and just sit down with them and talk to them. And if I've done anything wrong, I'll say I'm sorry and, 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 if, and we'll try to get it straight. And that'll be the right thing to do, the scriptural thing to do. And so I did. And uh, we had this meeting. It wasn't fun. Matter of fact, it was had knots in my stomach for it, for it, but went to the meeting and I, I shared and, and and we talked and you know and 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 I shared with them and said I'm sorry that if I've offended you in any way and and we talked through the things and sometimes in a meeting I'm going like oh that's not true that's not true that's not true I didn't say that loud that's what I was thinking but just to listen and whatever I did the right thing you know what the result was it got worse. You know, I, I don't, sometimes you do the right thing and people don't respond the way you expect them to. Sometimes you can do the right thing toward a spouse and toward your kids, toward a co-worker, toward even another believer, and you still get the wrong response. See, the reason that we have to keep in mind you do the right thing is because you want to honor God. Because if you're surrendered to God, and this is what I see in Paul's life, you're surrendered to God, you don't think that just because you do the right thing, you will automatically, people are going to do the, have the right response. 
So you have to keep in mind who, what you're doing things for, to honor God for him. See, that's the power of total surrender, regardless of how another person responds. Because we read verse 27, he does the right thing. And in verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. And this is what they did. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere. Emphasize that because it means that that Paul had become omnipresent all of a sudden. He could be all places at all times because he was stirring up all men everywhere. That's how strong the language was. Against our people and against our law and against this place. They were saying, you know, he was teaching against the, the people. He's no longer saying that you have to be a Jew because they believe the Jew, you have to be a Jew or a proselyte of a Jew to become, to be right with God. And they said, you know, the law, he's against the law. He's saying no longer you have to keep the law to be right with God. In a sense, he was saying this, but he didn't say those directly. And he was talking about where were the place, where were they at when this happened? They were in a temple. What happened in the temple? Generally, besides you know what we call worship, sacrifices. And people were sacrifices. No longer, because Jesus was now the once and for all sacrifice, there wasn't a need for that as well. And Paul wasn't going around teaching against those. He was teaching for other things. But they took and twisted his words in a real sense. And so they, they, uh, they, they did that. And then they say, and besides doing those things, which he hadn't really done, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. What? Isn't it good to bring visitors to church? Don't we, isn't that a high value at Great Oaks to bring visitors? Well, not in the Jewish religion. Because if you brought a Jewish, non-Jewish person to the temple, guess what the punishment was? Capital punishment. Yeah, yeah, they took it seriously. You know, it was, it was, it was a big deal. And, you know, you brought a non-Jewish person in there, you and the person could be you know, could be killed. That's how, how it was there. But as we read in the next verse, verse 29, the reason they thought this is, and besides he has brought Greeks into the temple, verse 29, because this in parentheses, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. They didn't even know he was there. They just assumed because, I mean, he was hanging out with this guy somewhere else in the city, and they assumed because now they're here that this is what happened. We've got to be careful about our assumptions because we can assume a lot of things that will get us in a lot of trouble. In verse 30, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, and they seized Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, this is how violent it became. They tried to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. And I have to tell you that at that time, generally, Jerusalem was probably 50,000, 60,000 people. But during this time of year when all this was going on, uh, in this time of year, there was maybe closer to half a million people, 500,000 people. There's just a lot of people in an uproar, it says. It says in verse 32, he at once took some officers, said, said the commander of the Roman troops took the whole city of Jerusalem, I heard the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once, the, the commander, took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Well, it doesn't sound like a few guys showing up. Well, it could have been as many as a thousand guys showed up. There was a Roman garrison there in Jerusalem. And there was a thousand soldiers. I don't know how many of them they took. It didn't say how many, but a large number of people, and so they stopped beating them. 
The commander, it says, came, verse 33, came and arrested him, arrested Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Remember the Agabus prophecy. Just a few verses before. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. But it says this in verse 34. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, people were yelling so much he couldn't get to the truth, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Now, quick review. Paul was falsely accused. He did, a, he did a thing he didn't have to do to prove that he was not who they said he was. Even when he did the right thing, it didn't matter. The response was not what he'd hoped for. But in the midst of this, as we will see next week, as we look at the, next, the last point, the last point is this, and this is, I encourage you to read uh, verse 37 there in 21 through chapter 23, verse 11. The last point is this. As soon as this happens, Paul stops in the midst of all this chaos. And he says, hey, guys, hey, guys, can I speak? Can I speak up? And he starts giving his testimony. And he does it two or three more times. Because remember what Paul's purpose was? To hold up the reputation of Christ. To be a witness wherever he went. And because he was living a life of total surrender, no matter what the situation, he was on purpose. He was focused. Man, I don't know about you, but that's incredible. Because it doesn't take much to get us off purpose, does it? I mean, one person said a bad word about us or give us a hard time. See, the power that God gives us through the Holy Spirit, it says in Scripture, and He gives it to every believer, is the power to live a life of total surrender that's on purpose, that deals with difficulty in a right way. And there is nothing that speaks to people more about something in your life that's different than you going through a tough time but still being on track on purpose and not being vindictive and lashing back. That's the power of total surrender. That's the power that God makes available to you and and to me when we give ourselves to Him. And when we drain, and what drains God's power from our life is when we have divided hearts. When we have this on again, off again relationship with Him. When He's just a piece of who we are and not all of who we are. God wants to give us that power in our life to live our life that way. He's ready and waiting and willing. We just have to say yes like Paul did. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning realizing that so often in life we respond to life like everybody else does. When things aren't going our way or when somebody says something negative to us, what we do is we lash back at them or we become defensive or we do all these things. That's, a nat- that's our natural inclination as people. 
But God, the way that we see Paul responding here in Scripture is supernatural. It's not the natural thing. It's, it can only be done be, not because Paul was such a great guy, but simply because Paul had the power of Christ living in him because he was totally surrendered and totally on purpose and unfocused with him. God, help us to realize that it's not about doing everything in life, but it's, by doing, it's about doing the one thing that makes a difference, that makes a difference in everyone else's life around us and in our life as well. It's where the peace and the joy and the happiness comes because it has nothing to do with externals. But it's what what we live for internally and eternally as well. Thank you, God, that uh, you give us this incredible, clear example in Scripture of a guy who had all kind of ups and downs. This is the same guy that, that just a few years before this had been going around killing or being a part of killing Christians. But you changed his life around in such a way by empowering him to live life for you, God, that um, he was now making a huge difference for others. He was the reputation of Christ was lifted up in his life, God. May it be said of us as well, God, that when people see us, they don't see us, God, they see Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, God, for what you'll do in our lives as we Give ourselves and surrender ourselves to you, God, and for your plan and purpose. Because, God, ultimately, that is what you know is best for us, and that's what you've designed us to, to do, is to do your plans and purposes. Empower us, God, to do those things through your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Remind you this morning as we close our service that we have the prayer room open. It goes through those doors. We'll have folks over there if you'd like to talk with them about some, maybe God's been moving your life in some way. Uh, you can talk with one of them. They'd love to sit and talk with you and pray with you about some need you have in your life, about taking the next step you need to take, whatever that may be. Uh, glad you were here. Come back next week, and we'll be looking at the second part of this, this message, talking about the power of to testify in the midst of difficulty. So we'll be looking at that next week.